0: As you may remember, I've spoken to John Hilton before. He's a keen aviator flying his CT Microlite out of Barton Aerodrome in Manchester. When we last spoke, John had said that he wanted to fly around the world in his CTSW Microlite. And as part of the build-up to doing just that, John told me that he wanted to fly his uh, Microlite to Canada and back, which is exactly what he did earlier this year. So for episode 69 of Flying Podcast, we're talking epic flights across the North Atlantic, risking life and all that. Here's John Hilton telling me exactly what it was like uh, on the flights from the UK to Canada and all the way back again. So John, uh, just refresh our memories, what's your flying experience to date?
1: Um, I'm 45 years old, I started flying when I was 21-ish in Missouri, got a US PPL and then came back to flying a couple of years after that and got an IMC night multi-engine rating and got the uh, the UK version of the license, obviously. And um, the plan was to go to commercial, and there was a couple of incidents with a flying school that I was involved with where I was looking to swap some flying hours for uh, sending chaps over, and then one guy went over there and trashed the only aeroplane by landing with the wheels up, which was a bit frustrating. Um, had a a girlfriend problem, there was a civil war in Zaire and I gave up the whole commercial flying thing and then came back to flying a couple of years ago and um, rolled up at Barton and looked at the different aeroplanes and and couldn't quite understand how a CT was a a microlight but thought modern aeroplane, um, modern design, modern engine, cheaper to maintain, cheaper to run and I thought that's the route I'll go down and that just brought into the equation the word microlight and uh, that's how I jumped into the CTSW and really haven't jumped out since.
0: Okay, and uh, you've done quite a lot of flying since you bought this aircraft, you've been all over Europe haven't you, many times? Um been into uh,
1: France a few times, took the aeroplane last year to the Alps and back, um, did the whole Austria thing and um, did last year's round Britain microlight rally and in conjunction with a chap called David Gaskell we got a little bit lucky and, and won the GPS category. Um, And then the the plan had always been to, with the aeroplane, to go around the world. And and then with a few sort of things on the personal level involving my dad's ill health and so on, um, and with uh, a little baby daughter on the scene, who's a beautiful little thing, um, Canada came into the equation because it seemed like a challenge uh, and not an overly long one away from home, so to speak. So I thought, yeah, give that a go.
0: Okay, so uh, you decided to go to Canada and you, you thought you'd raise some money for charity. I know you've been raising money for a certain charity uh, along the way anyway, so we, well, just tell us what that charity is.
1: Yeah, I've, for the last couple of years, been raising money for um, a Liverpool cancer charity, Clatterbridge, and the you can find the link at www.justgiving.com forward slash John, J-O-N dash Hilton, H-I-L-T-O-N. And over various different things that we've done, we've raised just over £10,000 now with a certain amount of that, a little bit of that coming from um, the Canada trip, but it's it, in a nutshell, it's sort of been a, a slow accumulation of funds rather than big fundraisers. It's just been me trying to sell on different bits for charity. If I've won something or other, I've you know I've tried to um, auction it off and put all the proceeds to, to the charity. And at no point have I. Um, Made any monies or profit out of out of the idea of of raising money for charity? It's just purely been a um, a charitable thing. I've just been trying to do a good thing for a good cause.
0: Great stuff. Uh, now you set off in in May, didn't you? Um, and all it was reasonably nice weather here. Um, obviously, it's going to be pretty damn cold en route because you're going the North Atlantic route. How did you prep your aircraft to uh, to take that into account?
1: Um, the the trip in a way. As I say, it came about because of my dad's um, ill health and then, ironically, because of a, a bank holiday weekend that was on the horizon. And because of that, it, that, that led to the, the time frame um, and I ended up speaking to um, Gary Masters and talked about the, the temperature situation in Canada around about then. So I flew down and had gave the aircraft a 200-hour service and he changed the antifreeze and and tried his damnedest to uh, to make the aircraft as warm inside as possible by putting different air vents in the aircraft. I went and saw um, Deepak at London Air Sports, and one of his contacts helped me um, try and calibrate the air temperature sensor, which wasn't quite working right. Um, there was issues with some of the EGT sensors, so he, he worked on that. Um, and in general terms, I tried to... to learn from this chap as to his ferrying experience because because he'd got a certain amount of that and i'd just listened to everything gary masters had said and listened to everything deepak had said and listened to everything this other chap had said um and tried to get in the mindset of how you go about a, a long ferry flight and that was the view that i took that it was a ferry flight rather than an adventure but it you know the plan was that it was it was a stepping outside of my comfort zone trying to do something that as far as I was aware no one had ever done before
0: okay you're flying alone on this what sort of equipment did you take with you do you uh, take a North Atlantic type immersion suit and a little raft
1: I spent a thousand pounds on a two-man raft I spent about a thousand pounds on a Garmin 795 to go along with the Garmin 496 I bought another emergency locator beacon um, I went to my local sort of survival sh- um, shop and spent a fortune on red um, thermal shirts on the basis that yeah, that's where they that's how they'd managed to find the body. Um, and um, and I, b- <laughs> I bought Kendall mint cake and, and I bought all sorts of hydrating types of foods. And I got a a pack through from a ferry pilot chap that I've, I came into contact with and basically he sent me a list and I bought everything that was on his list and um, and it ended up as a big, big kind of duffel bag thing, kind of human size that sat on the passenger seat.
0: Okay, so you departed Barton on, uh, it was a Friday wasn't it, at end of May, about the 24th was it? Yep, rolled up at Barton. I um, oh, saw so you comment in the uh, departure book in the, in the control tower there, <laughs> departing Departing <to> Canada. Canada. <laughs> yeah. yeah. week.
1: Yeah. yeah, that was just a little bit cocky. That was just because I, was, I think I was a bit uh, nervous. With my good friend Dave Mellon, we'd, we'd, we'd come to Barta the previous day and we'd tried to fuel the aeroplane up with MoGas and got it all over the bloody place. It just splashed all over just because I was nervous and I think Dave was a bit nervous. And um, so the airplane was all ready to go on the the Friday because it was a uh, kind of a long bank holiday weekend, and I'd taken the, the Friday off. And um, and the weather was it just seems to be par for the course. The weather was just very windy, and there was a front in the way between here at Barton and and uh, Scotland. Um, I filled out the the book in there saying you know heading towards Canada came and sat in the aircraft as we're doing now and and thought it's too windy to fly it's 20 odd knots gusting higher than that no one else is flying no one sensible is flying but i thought I've never stopped you before well i, I kind of I, I i know the airplane very well and i thought i could maybe do it but i thought it's gonna be dangerous and i thought in all honesty i thought jonathan you dick pardon my language i'm sure you can edit that bit out and then i thought to myself if i don't go now then i'm just never going to do it i'm just going to be one of these chaps that sits at home and says i'll try and do this and then if i don't i don't and i thought you know there comes a time when you just have to say i am going to give it a go and if it ends in failure then it ends in failure in whatever degree that is but i'll give it a go so decided i'd um I'd, i'd head off and uh and um with a ridiculous kind of roll along the the runway i was airborne and sort of heading towards uh wick and um just felt like i was walking it was a bloody horrible experience um and then towards the lake district there was a an under over decision in terms of flying above the cloud or flying below it and i went under and there was about a thousand feet's worth of of clearance and then and then everything just kind of went milky and and um and there was a kind of a haze around and um i was getting forced lower into the the hillsides and um and um i kept looking around <laughs> and there was one occasion i was doing a scan outside of the uh, the aircraft i noticed that there was ice building up on the wings and um and that was a bit intimidating And I kind of charged down a valley heading towards Carlisle um, lower than I would have liked um, and and came out into blue skies. But that was kind of a, you know, it might be May, but ice can happen at any time kind of introduction. And, and, you know, this is the kind of experience that I'm just going to have more and more of. And then after Carlisle... (laughs) The weather was lovely it was it was pretty much beautiful on the way to um, to wick and the irony being that after having had ice on the wings um, as I was heading further north into Scotland um, Sun coming through the, the the top of the aircraft um, completely goosed up the iPad that just switched itself off it said you know too hot I'm, I'm saying bye bye and that led me to having to spend more time working on the garmin 795 and I'd got you know I'd played with that to the point where I knew how to work it. But it's a hell of a shock when something goes unserviceable and you yeah. immediately have to go on to your, your second piece of kit. Um, and that was a bit of a, um, a a bit of a moment. And again a sort of a an eye opener to the fact that things just at any time can go pear shaped and you kind of have to be prepared for that.
0: We're using Sky Demon?
1: I was using Sky Demon on the iPad and that's you know, that's become second nature. The Garmin stuff is is the four nine six is is fine. Um, the 795 which had got the the worldwide database on it it's a different setup it's a different way you sort of go into things and because of the nature of the touch screen element to it um it's kind of harder to use when you're in the aircraft yeah. with the sky demon thing i can just put it on my knee and it's it's you know you know exactly where you're up to and it's easy to play with the the, the 795 is a beefier piece of kit so it doesn't really sit on your knee it has to sit on a on a mount, and then when you're trying to push buttons and the aeroplane is moving around, yeah. it, it's a difficult thing to, to make work. But you know, that was my introduction to the Sky Demon's going to fail, so or the iPad's going to fail. So, you know, time to spend more time playing around with Garmin.
0: Uh, so, on the first day, you, were, you went to Wick, just stopped off there, refuelled, and what carried on?
1: Stopped off, um, got out of the aeroplane. A couple of chaps came over and said hi, asked where I was going. I said Canada. They looked at me like I was a complete silly monkey Um, went and checked the weather um, with the guy in the the, um, ops place and I hate the idea of flying through weather fronts Um, but the two of us looked at this weather front just um, further north of of Wick (laughs) and he said I should be fine and I kind of went well um, yeah I'm probably sure maybe it might be And I thought, you know, the trip up to the Faroes, not a massively long trip, and I'll have enough fuel to come back if there's a problem. So I said, I'll go. And um, took off, headed past um, the Orkneys, and um, the the cloud did come down a little bit, but not sort of scarily so. And um, I found my way to the Faroe Islands and um, sort of flew up some of the, uh, the, 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 the fjords there. And um, I was presented with Vegar Airport, and um, subsequently landed there. Got out. Chap appeared um, to to fill the aircraft again, and um, he put up the stepladders and uh, started filling the aeroplane. And then he took a phone call at the same time as he was trying to fill up the aircraft wings. And at Barton, you know, I'd have been crucified for Mm -hmm. that. You know, someone would have sort of just um, shot me with a taser but uh, this guy you know the only thing that was missing was a fag from his mouth um but i mean apart from that so i sort of gave him my uh my my best um i'm not impressed kind of look which you know had no impact on him whatsoever he could care less he could care less and then it really really winds me up he sloshed fuel all over the wings and just didn't seem to care about it and i've got you know there's an element of ocd about me that can't walk away from a car door without checking it twice so I I was there sort of mopping up his gunk off the wing, thinking, oh, come on, you know, be nice. But also, you know, try to have a smile on my face and not upset anyone, but there's a horrible moment where you see the fuel just dissipate over the wing, knowing that it's going to discolour the, the surface of the wing itself. But um, I just smiled and said, thanks, and then he gave me the bill.
0: <laughs> Bless him. <laughs> Uh, so did you stay over in the Faroes or crack on
1: uh there was a lady in um in air ops and um in the tower and she asked me if I wanted to stay and um, I think i I must have been flying about seven or eight hours at that point and I thought there's a chance I can get to um to iceland and um so i said I looked at the um the weather she gave me a specific two page four page sheet which had all sorts of uh, tips on about flying in Iceland and all the special um, um, details about, you know, what you'll see on the weather maps up there, which might you might not necessarily see floating around Lancashire, which was uh, a bit of an eye-opener. Um, we filled out the flight plan, put the, um, the FDCT code on the flight plan, which is for aircraft of 600 kg, which is the only flight plan details for this. Um, and I took off and... Um, everything was kind of fine for a while on the flight out and um but then the weather started to deteriorate a little bit and i was faced with the fact that i couldn't get to Reykjavik Keflavik and um and i needed to I, as i got nearer to iceland um i i managed to get through to the uh the radio chaps there and uh the agreement was that it would be best if i diverted north to akurey which is uh, what i did because the, the expectation was that the weather was about 10 or so knots and a high cloud base and everything would be hunky dory so i sort of diverted there and um and it wasn't you know the cloud base came down and the winds got up to 20 25 knots and um the scenery was beautiful for a while but at the same time you you kind of you you, you do get into that mindset of everything i see can kill me Mm. you know if it's lovely white cloud all it's doing is 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 ice on the wings if i get too close to it you know and large parts of iceland just no bugger lives there you know and and i think you know you have to take the perspective of you know i'm just a dead man walking if that you know three uh if the propeller at the front of the aircraft stops then you know the terrain is such that you can't really safely put down, um, and you know there is that that thought of I am just going to die. There's just no pleasant way of thinking about it. Survive the landing, no bug is necessarily going to be able to pick me up because you know there's large parts of flying the North Atlantic where you're out of radio communications with people, um, and then when the cloud comes down, if you have to go down with it, you lose communications then and uh, it just is, it's 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 a realisation that you're dead and it's, it was a horrible feeling but is that, is you that get the, used to it.
0: Is that the loneliest feeling in the world when you make a radio call and it's just silence and you think you know, nobody knows where the hell I am?
1: Well kind of, there's, there's two elements to that, the first lonely part is when some person phones you up on the radio or calls you up on the radio or you call them up on the radio and um, they're expecting that you're a commercial aircraft of some way so you sort of have to go through the stupidness of saying oh kind of a recreational vf only aircraft to which that confuses the hell out of them um, and then yeah there is that that realization again that um, you know you're doing something that most sensible people don't and and that involves a risk of life and limb and you know and that that feeling of insecurity and being alone is is you can you can taste it in your mouth. Yep. You know, you have that horrible feeling in your stomach that says, you know, there is there is a, a chance that I'm just not gonna make it and then the more flying you do in that kind of environment, the more you kinda of realise that the chance of, of of death is is an ever increasing one. And um, you know, it it's with different situations that I went through with the aeroplane, you know, you you fly, you know, you, you can get up to I think the highest I got with this was about twelve or thirteen thousand feet, trying to avoid cloud, and um, and it is things go on in the aeroplane, instruments fail um, because of the cold, the mounting for the Garmin um, fell off the window, and. Um, and it's all these kind of things that really does make you appreciate that you're just on your own and you have to do your best, otherwise you're dead in. I completely understand how people do die in aeroplanes. The whole the tendency to panic is huge. It's absolutely immense. It's, it, it would just be so easy just to say, sod it, you know. I'm kind of, uh, I'm going to give up. Um, and I do understand how people have major dilemmas in aeroplanes. But um, you know, I managed to keep it together and 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 try and see my way clear of instrument failures. And unfortunately, the Rotax was brilliant, and the airframe was brilliant. And I made my way to uh, to um, Accurie and landed in twenty odd knot winds. And um, and there, unfortunately, I didn't have anywhere to to tie the aeroplane down, um, so I had to beg and plead to try and get space indoors, and I ended up. Put in there for the night in um, a maintenance shed, courtesy of a couple of chaps that were at the airport itself. But without them, the airplane wouldn't survive the night. It had just been, you know, wreckage by the aircraft, me uh, by the um, the airport fence because um, it was too windy. It was just too windy to leave the bloody thing outside. Um, and then a very nice chap, uh, whose name I forget, something bald, Vincent, um, drove me at about ten or eleven o'clock at night into uh, Accurie Town Centre, and. Um, well, loads of people out partying and i'd done 10 or 11 days flying that night and i was absolutely that day and i was absolutely goosed and it was still kind of daylight it was just all surreal you know 30 minutes previously i'd been worried about getting ice on the wings and crashing into the terrain and and you then think about how your body's going to get found and all sorts of strange thoughts go through your mind and then 20 30 minutes later as i say people are having a whale of a time and and just partying and it, it does remind you that life just goes on even if you do make a mess of the way you fly the aeroplane
0: so you stayed over in, in this little town and get a good night's kit ready for uh, the day out <laughs> didn't get any
1: sleep at all it's kind of it, it got darkish about half twelve one o'clock in the morning and then started to get light about four or five o'clock so you wake up when the, um, when the sun comes up uh, got up walked to the airport, again it was 20 knots or so, I kind of looked at all the weather predictions I'd got and that I'd printed off and with I say the comment of one of the local pilots in my ears I thought you know sod it I will go. I was worried that the aeroplane might get blown over on the ground because it was, it was you know the winds were rocking quite a bit when I was taxiing out but I kind of held it together and so did bless the aeroplane whose uh, nickname is Samson. And um, and me and Samson took off and 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 headed over to uh, Greenland. And um, talking about the kit I took on the aeroplane, I had the um, an immersion suit with me, which I'd got from a um, a flight services firm. And I'd said to the guy when I bought it, I said, you know, I want one with the um, uh, the cuffs kind of thing, so I can take the the um, the mittens off, if you will. And the chap was adamant that no, you know, you need one which is a complete fit all the way around. Um, so my plan was to wear it and you know be suited up all the time. The practical reality of it is, it's just impossible to wear, to use the microphone, to have inside, you know, t- to have as a, a workable piece of kit. So when you're down at five hundred feet and you've only got half your immersion suit on because you can't fly on it, you know, it is. It really is a. It's a mental thing of that's just another weight that you have to bear, you know, and um, and it's not a pleasant experience.
0: The immersion suit is something else, and when you actually put it on, it's not something you want to wear all the time, is it? And the gloves that are built in are like ultra-thick marigolds, aren't they? I I was actually amazed that the the iPad still works when you get your gloves on. Well, there's two
1: types, because I've seen some chaps in Cirrus' that have sort of the the gloves that will come off, and then they kind of sort of velcro on in whatever way. The, The immersion suit that I was sold on the basis of this chap saying it's the only way to go, you know, you can't take the gloves off. And because of that, it's just completely impractical to use. So I took it on the trip on the basis that, you know, if I do ditch, it'll be great because it's an all-in-one thing. So there's not going to be any water ingress over, you know, the course of a couple of hours. But the practical reality is you just can't fly with it on. So I kind of get it up to, or was getting it up to my waist and then just tying the rest of it around my, uh, my torso. But that means that kind of 500 feet above the water, you have no time whatsoever to get it on. Yeah, you know and when you are trying to fly straight and level and especially if the cloud comes down and you're skimming along at just a couple of hundred feet you know it's just practically you you just do not have the ability to wriggle into it without crashing into the water yeah it's like a a
0: five minute job to get it on when you stood on the apron
1: (laughs) yeah i mean it's great for keeping your feet warm (laughs) but other than that bugger
0: all used to me right so we, we arrived in greenland
1: um we got closer to to greenland um and at Greenland, um, again, the, the, I knew that the weather was going to be naff between Iceland and Greenland. As I say, I got up to the whole 12,000, 13,000 feet thing. Um, the, the parts of the dynon stopped working. It suggested I was doing 400 knots. Um, it suggested I got a 99-knot headwind. It suggested that I was in banking terms. I was sort of leaning the aeroplane over. And at 12 13,000 feet, you start to ask yourself, you know, whether um, whether you're getting hypoxia and, and all sorts of sort of questions like that. And, again, you sort of have to take the keep calm and carry on mentality. Um, but, I, you know, I, I managed to get myself through that and I had to descend through a little bit of misty cloud, again, at VNE speeds and a little bit of ice appearing. Um, but, you know, struggled through that over the course of the five six hours or whatever the flight was got closer to um Kool-Suk in greenland on the expectation that it was supposedly very nice weather at the airfield and then kind of rattled towards the the uh, coast only to find that the visibility was i don't know maybe a mile maybe less than that and the cloud had come down to seven or eight hundred feet and you kind of you you approach it long final and the chap chirps up on the radio and and tells you the um the tells you all the stuff he's expected to tell you and then says, just for good measure, it's a gravel runway and there's um, uh, snow banks either side and you've got water um, just cascading across the runway and you think, oh, right, okay, well, I'll try and do the best I can. But, um, but you know, it, it, again, that was a bloody horrible experience. Um, but I just floated along. By that point, I'd got water in the pitot system, so I'd got no airspeed readings whatsoever so you kind of hope that you're not going to cock up the landing and with this obviously you've no airspeed probably no stall warning device so you're hoping you're not landing too fast and too slow and then you've got the other variable of gravel to land on and then you've got the other variable of water rushing across that, or well, not rushing but sort of going across that so you worry about ice because everywhere snowbound. Um, but I touched down you know, I was quite drained I got out of the aeroplane this um, young studenty type chap appeared and we started as i was sort of peeling off my immersion suit we started chatting and um and he was saying it's a lovely airplane isn't it i said yes it's a very nice aeroplane. and um and i was really tired and i didn't really want to chat but i didn't want to be ignorant either so he was sort of saying you know um you're he said something like you're brave or something like that. i said no no it's a great airplane it'll you know served me really well and um then he said it, it can't weigh a lot and i said you know 450 kilos, and um, and on all the paperwork from the chaps that I'd spoken to before, I'd put 450 kilos on the flight plan. It's 600 kilos because that's the only reference point they have for this type of aeroplane. And then um, when I was in the tower trying to pay for fuel and organise for flying on the uh, the following day, kind of thing, um, the chap there said uh, he kind of had a bit of a distant look in his eye and he said um so uh how much does that airplane weigh again And i went well she's a great airplane this one and he said yeah she looks like she's super how much does she cruise at and uh, and how much fuel does she burn and, and how much does she weigh and i just wasn't prepared for bureaucracy and um and i got to the end of airspeed and i got to the end of fuel and i mentioned 450 which is what i would put on my paperwork throughout and um and he said we don't accept ultralights in um in greenland and um unless it was registered through denmark then we had a problem and i said oh and i was knackered i would just you know i said right well i'm sure we can sort things out and that was from what i remember the um uh the saturday um greenland closes on sunday they don't let people fly on the sunday or well, certainly not um certainly not unless you're a commercial aircraft and you pay commercial rates but they generally don't like uh, smaller aircraft flying on the Sunday so the airfield closes down unless you pay $500 or whatever it was and there was no chance of me of doing that um, so on the Monday I sort of rolled up at the um, the airport again snow everywhere You know, the, the, by the side of the road towards the airport the snow is like 10, 11, 12 feet th- uh, deep rather. and um, I had my big duffel bag with me um, which is about like three or four feet long, just ram-jam stuff with stuff and um went and saw this chap and um, he said, <laughs> what's the effect of, you're stuffed, uh, you're not flying anywhere, you're you goosed. And I said, you know, I, I just, I thought to myself, I can argue or I can jump in the aeroplane and I can bugger off back to Greenland or I can do any number of things. But I thought, no, let's try and work through the problem. And he put me in touch with um, the guy in Denmark who controlled the skies over there. And um, and this chap started talking and I started to talk back. And I said, you know, I've seen a picture of another aeroplane that's gone through here on the round the world thing that the, the other CT did. And um, I said, I've got a friend of mine who says that CTs go through Denmark all the time. And this chap immediately went, no, they don't. We don't let any microlites through, and I thought well, that can't necessarily be the case, can it? And then he went on and explained, "We don't like microlites or ultralights in Greenland. We try to do whatever we can to to um, stop them coming through." And I thought, right, I'm going to have a problem here. And um, I tried to be on a bit of a charm offensive with him. I was completely knackered, completely drained, but I, I tried to say, "Look, you know, please tell me what's needed because I'm here now." Tell me what I need to do. What things I need to tick off the list, and um, and I'll try and do that. And he kind of relented a little bit, and said, "Right, well, um, you know, this isn't the best start to the relationship. But if you abide by the fact that you know you're a numb nuts and I'll tell you what to do, we might be able to work through this." And um, and that's kind of he gave me list upon list of things that he wanted to do, things like weight and balance calculations, thing like seeing. Um, details of my medical of my pilot's license um, all sorts of search and rescue details um, all sorts of things and the stumbling block appeared to be that um, he wanted an unlimited um, search and rescue budget for either collecting me or my body and my search and rescue policy only went up to £50,000 um, and So I spent two or three days trying to resolve the whole search and rescue thing. Um, They wouldn't provide, the the firm in Texas wouldn't provide any further cover. Um, So in the end I ended up having to write a letter to my solicitor saying the event of my death that my estate would pay for the cost of recovering my body if it was in excess of £50,000. He also wanted um, letters from the CAA saying that I was a a reasonably competent pilot, and there was various other hoops that he had me jump through. Um, but after three days of, of being in Greenland and being on the phone and being on the internet and trying to jump through the hoops, I finally got
0: authority and permission to fly on. So that took you from having landed on the Saturday, what to to the Friday, was it? You then.
1: I got permission to fly on. I think on the Wednesday. I think it was the Wednesday. <coughs> but by that point, it was too late to get to um, the southern part of well there'd been two issues the original plan I got from the ferry firm was to go from Kuljusuk directly west to the other side of Greenland and that meant flying at just above 10,000 feet maybe. Kuljusuk's on the east coast yeah. Kuljusuk's on the east coast um, Sonderström's on the west coast and what a lot of the ferry pilots do is they go from east to west fly above twelve, thirteen thousand 13,000 feet and you know it's a couple of hours flight it's a two-hour flight and um, the the two issues with that is that to do that route, people have crashed doing that route because you get into you can get into a whiteout situation where you literally, as daft as it sounds, you literally do not know where the sky is and where the surface of the ice cap is. So I had that thought on my mind about the weather conditions there. But as part of the negotiation with this uh, chap in Denmark, um, he'd said, "I don't want you to fly over the ice cap because." Uh, the danish rules say that you can't um you can't fly an aircraft above a certain height um if it's running off mo gas well the airplane hadn't been running off mo gas for however long so that wasn't an issue mm-hmm. i'd been fueling it up with avgas so uh, again in theory i could have gone up to the twelve, thirteen thousand feet um and been safe but the piece of paper that he'd given me said you cannot fly above a certain height so even though it wasn't particularly relevant to me because i didn't have the fuel in there that the, the the rules were were designed for it was one of those of bureaucracy is bureaucracy is bureaucracy and i had to do as i was told having said that the the chaps at um, at kooliosuk in the tower that i'd spent three or four days with had kind of become friends of mine it was kind of you know it literally was um what's it called
0: stockholm syndrome stockholm
1: syndrome you, your captors become your friends you know i'd offered i'd started tidying up the bloody tower for them i'd offered to clean the 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 tower um windows and stuff and we'd become friends and i think um the the chaps there had sort of had, had seen that i'd gone through hell trying to sort out all these problems <coughs> and um and and the suggestion was there was a kind of a subtle suggestion of, if it's for safety reasons, we'll let you fly over the mm-hmm. um, over the ice cap. And I kind of, you know, thought to myself, well, I've told the guy in Denmark that I'm not going to do that. That I'll fly the longer route down to the southern part of Greenland. and um, But there was a look on this chap's face in the tower as if to say, you know, that could be a killer. Yep. You know, your best route is to hop over the, the ice cap. But again you know i told the guy in denmark that i'd stick by the rules and um and that's what i did jumped in the airplane on the um i think it was the thursday and um and and took off heading south and that was you know, again i checked with all the weather stations but the weather in the north atlantic it just changes you know from expectations of perfect kavok weather 20 minutes later it can be again horribly deadly and I found myself dinking along at 100, 200 feet above um, icebergs just off the coast. And um, and again, it was just one of the most intense experiences of my life.
0: Was there ever a point, point? mean, I've seen some of your photos of icebergs and cliffs and beautiful scenery, was there ever a point where you thought, actually this isn't too bad, I can relax for the next hour and, and really enjoy it?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> no, every moment was an absolute bloody terror i'm just looking at some of these damn pictures now and uh you know th- there's something really unpalatable about cold weather and i don't do cold the whole idea of me saying <coughs> pardon me the whole idea of me saying i'm going to do a flight to canada what a monumental dick i mean it's cold in canada what am i as a warm weather person thinking about bloody canada about but and then you look outside of the aeroplane and as i say you just you just see You'd see nothing but bloody cold. Mm. And um, again, looking at these pictures, there was one part of that trip where um, I've got up to looking at this twelve thousand three hundred and twenty feet. You know, the EGT sensors have have gone from green to yellow. You know, the airspeed indicator reading say I'm doing four hundred and thirty six knots. Allegedly, I've got a ninety nine knot headwind. You know, you really don't know what the hell is going on in practical terms. You've got your instruments in front of you. You're trying your best to interpret them. You're in a hostile environment. You've no, you've no friendly voices around you. You don't have people that know of the aeroplane, the type of aeroplane, what you're going through, and what you're experiencing. <clears throat> and you are literally on your own. And you might be, you know, one, two, three, four, whatever hours away from civilization. And it feels monumentally scary it's 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 truly a horrible experience and when the the dyadon rolled over as far as i was aware i was flying straight and level but when the dyadon just all of a sudden just tilts and kind of does a diagonal across the screen <laughs> you think oh please tell me that's not right but you're looking out thinking it can't be right but then you're thinking <clears throat> <laughs> you, there is that moment of thinking oh I must be bloody dead you know and just yeah. no one's told me you know but th- there was there was some really intense experiences and on that trip down to <coughs> to um, to Narsasawak I'd gone through some horrible weather conditions hadn't seen anyone hadn't been able to pick anyone up on the radio and um, I came out of a little bit of a cloud and, and spotted a, a fishing boat and um, really I, I'd orbited around it at about 500 feet and for maybe three orbits of that, that trawler, all I could think of was, you know, I'll try me down this to get my um, immersion suit fully on, and then I'm just going to ditch in the sea, just can't do this anymore, I'm going to ditch in the sea and let the buggers get me to wherever their port is, and then I'm going to get a <laughs> bloody flight home, but I'm not flying this bloody, but anyway, I got my, you know, I put my balls back where they were supposed to be, and, um, and, and, and headed again on a, on a southerly track or ish to uh, to you know, um but it is you know the whole scene ice in the water um, and the water being kind of an intense blue and the ice being an intense white it's it's obvious that it's bloody freezingly cold out there and any you know any attempt at a gentle landing whether it be on the water or whether it be on an iceberg or whatever it might be or onto onto the, the jagged coastline, um, you 're just not going to survive it you 're just dead and and again that 's that 's kind of the experience that you get used to but um and then it you know you get down to a couple of hundred feet again because the clouds come down and you see kind of sleet coming towards you and um again it it it, it is quite an intense
0: experience when, when was the first time on the trip that you actually thought i 'm going to die? Was it in the Lake District or was it a bit bit later than that?
1: Well, I I didn't... whenever you see ice, (coughs) which has sort of become a bit of an uncomfortable experience during that trip, you know, you say to yourself, yeah, this is potentially where I'm going to die. On the Lake District thing, I thought to myself, if I die in the lakes I'm going to look like such a complete (laughs) bloody arse. You know. This is my hometown. I can't believe you'd land here. But I was conscious of the fact there was a chap about two or three years ago that um bless him, a guy called Martin Bromage, he tried to take a flex wing from um wherever in England to Australia and he um got disorientated in Cloud and died in the English Channel. Mm. Um and there there was that thought in the lake district leg of, you know, is this where I kill myself? Um I knew I'd got all the weather details on that part of the leg I knew that Carlisle would be free of cloud I'd heard some other chaps on the radio talk about diverting there because they'd got caught out so I'd I'd kind of um, gone through the mental process of you know I think I can get out of this but at least in England you know where you know you've got no local knowledge Greenland I had no bloody local knowledge and you know unsurprisingly
0: never been there in my, my life and unlikely to go there again, I think it'd be quite romantic to die in Coniston wouldn't it or uh...
1: um, to die in Coniston <laughs> well you know it's the whole dying anywhere really that you you <laughs> kind of if if there is an option to avoid
0: i think i'll uh, 'll I'll go with that one a bit of a bluebird sort of thing going on dying in Coniston wouldn't it it'd be alongside greats well that's uh,
1: <laughs> a that's good of you to say, and b you know i'm I'm trying to put off that for as kind of long as i I can, but um yes you know it's uh it's it's at the end of the day we all die you know there's just no way of getting around it my dad was faced with um a heart bypass operation at the time and um you know that was maybe one of the the drivers for the trip but um we all die you know it's what you do during the time that you're alive and you know it's you have to do stuff, otherwise you're just the kind of person that
0: talks about it. so we're in uh is it that's on the west coast
1: yeah, I'd kind of
0: um aimed
1: for uh which is on the the southern part of um of greenland um The slight headache there is you get um you get winds coming from both ends of the runway um and again, I'd got no reliable um airspeed indicator readings so um, that was an interesting approach and they had me going inland into the valley to come in and, and land no airspeed indicator readings so as I was descending um, the um, the dino started to flash that the engine was about to shock cool itself um, I was having a little bit of problem speaking to the guys in the tower because the radio reception was, was flaking in and out and um, I'd landed I landed faster than I wanted to Um, but yeah I managed to to touch down nice and and safely at uh, the Sasawak and um, got out of the aeroplane again peeled off the lower half of the immersion suit and and just felt absolutely shagged. What
0: what would you say is actually driving you on I mean you you keep saying you know you think this is it you know you've, you've reached the end you're shuffling off your mortal coil any minute now what drives you on if you if you, you're that worried and you're not enjoying it
1: i don't know i don't know
0: it's you know, so easy just to say yeah. right that's it the weather doesn't look good i'll you know i'll have it crated back from here and you know fly back commercial
1: there, there was there was talk from the chaps at greenland i think they looked at the aeroplane and knowing their weather conditions you know a couple of chaps um and the the people that i was speaking to in greenland were basically danish chaps that were speaking very good english and there was the there was the the gentle side comments of if you want to create this up you can do um and it does play on your mind a little bit oh uh, it certainly did play on my mind um but the 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 view I took was i've set myself a target you know unless it becomes completely impractical i'm going to do it and um so you know i headed up to Nuke, and um the west coast of of um of greenland um you know, started to get a little bit blue, and I could see the the ice cap on the horizon at sort of ten thousand feet up, and um, and it did get you know a little bit of picture postcard kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It did look quite pleasant, but again, you've got in the back of your mind that if the rubber band stops, you're screwed. <laughs> um, but you know, I I landed at um, at Nuke and um, which is I say this, the uh, the country's capital, so it's a decent sized airport. There's lots of these. Um, or whatever they are's um, passenger aircraft that bounce in and around of there and um went into the tower, paid my fuel and um and and then decided that I would I would take off and head to, uh, to Canada. Um again I'd checked the weather details and um and I'd spoken to the Canadians. Um and I took off and started heading west and um again your heart starts to sink you know you just you you just not feeling happy with the world (laughs) um and then the point when you start to lose radio contact with people and you realize yet again you're sort of in a a black hole um again it's just not a pleasant experience
0: um were you um, able to contact any commercial airliners when you were in sort of areas where you couldn't connect with anyone by radio to land
1: there was the interesting thing about the the trip from um Iceland to Greenland and Greenland to Canada is that there is relay calls go on you don't kind of realise it but even the commercial jets get out of range of of land so to speak so they start passing on relay calls from one aircraft to another aircraft to the ground station um and, and and I sort of got into the habit of trying to make relay calls because with some of the the fact that I'd been blanked off by different banks of cloud I'd had to change my my route a little bit and um, and you start trying to make these relay calls because you want to say to someone look I'm not where I kind of should be at a certain time and um, and no one answers (laughs) and it's it is kind of one of those laughable things and I guess I'm kind of regressing into the experience I went through now but Um, it's intimidating it's soul destroying it's like it's kind of like having a a telephone book and you've got lists of numbers on there and you start phoning people but no one's answering and the difference is that when you're in the aeroplane that can be life and death and you want someone to answer but how many times do you go (coughs) I'm making it up now but Golf Charlie Golf India Zulu to Sonderstrom Information golf charlie golf in zulu to gander information or you know whatever the different call signs and whatever the different radio frequencies i was trying you know you you make the first radio call and then you think well they haven't answered but maybe they were reaching for a cup of tea at that point mm-hmm. or maybe someone had just gone to the toilet or maybe someone wasn't expecting a call you know so you keep making the radio calls and no one answers and it's horrid it really is horrid and in the meanwhile. You know, you've got the under and the over decisions with the cloud to think of and you've got the worry of, you know, what if I do get blocked in and what if the only way is up until I fall out of the sky or until I do get pushed into the ocean, and it's horrible. And then, fortunately, I got to the point where I started to see uh, the Canadian coast, but even as I got halfway and I was in that black hole and I was out of radio contact with everyone, there was a part of me said, you've got to Canadian airspace now, sod it and turn back and, and, and head back, and um, but I didn't. I got to Canadian Airspace um, and then found Frobisher Bay, which from memory is about 100 miles long and started to fly up that. The clouds started to push me down to about a thousand feet and it was kind of a milky whiteness all the way around the aircraft, bits of the mountains either side of the, the bay which was for the most part frozen up. Um, and um, about 20 miles out, because I hadn't had contact with anyone from radio, from Canada. About 20 miles out, maybe a bit less than that, I started to pick up the chaps at um at and um, and you know the guy um, seemed quite pleasant. Um, he said that uh, as I was joining, he mentioned that there was two um, 737s, I think, that were that were coming into to land, and I didn't want to have any mucky air turbulence issues and i just didn't want to be a pain for anyone and i wanted to try and be pleasant so i said that i'd orbit around until the 2737s had landed and um one by one they sort of appeared and one by one they said we're cancelling our ifr landing procedure because it was for them ifr they landed i i think as a moment of comedy you know, I was freezing my tits off in this aeroplane, and every moment in it was was a, a you know was a a slice against my brain power, and I was dying a death inside the aeroplane. And I wanted one of these buggers in the jets to say, "Cheers, mate! You know, thanks for letting us come in first You know, because if you'd have come in, we'd have had to have orbited and you know burnt more fuel. But no bugger said anything. What the guy did say on the radio was, um, "The microlight is prepared to stay out of the way," so he'd acknowledged the fact that I was a microlight. Um, and that you know vfr aircraft so the jets landed i tried to land just after them um further down the runway so i'd avoid the weight turbulence issues but when i did touch down um i did feel a little bit of giving one of the tires and um and that played on my mind a little bit the whole you know what to do if there was a problem with the airplane sort of started to resurface because there's no real maintenance facilities there um Rolled the aeroplane off the the active runway, and um, went to fill up with the uh, the avgas that was there. And you have to buy, the, if they've got a drum of avgas, you have to buy the whole thing, even if you only want, you know, eighty liters or whatever. You've got to buy the whole of it. So that is a real pisser, part of my language, because you you're there thinking, I'm buying stuff that I'm never going to use. Yeah. You know, you do feel like you've been a little bit taken advantage of. You know, and I just I am a cheapskate, so I was kind of a bit frustrated by that. And as there's, as there's, i was trying to fill the airplane um customs appeared these two guys in this huge kind of suv kind of um uh, police van uh, kind of four-wheel drive thing appeared and these two america two canadian guys got out both wearing those reflective silver kind of sunglasses um and the the guy that started chatting first was a guy called agent godspell and i thought I, I, you know is he here to rescue me is he here to arrest me is he you know is he, is he an agent of God I just couldn't quite get my head around that but he made comment we wouldn't normally turn out but the comment on the uh, the piece of paper we got was that you were a microlite, so we thought we'd come and say hi I'm like alright okay I could tell they thought I was an idiot um, and I sort of pleasantly said you know if you want to look around the aeroplane you're more than welcome and, and they really just sort of looked at it as if they were tourists and they were just oh this is novel mm. kind of thing and the guy asked, you know, reason for flying to Canada, and I said, pleasure. And he looked at me like I was stupid. <laughs> and then he he said, um, how long are you going to be here? And I sort of said eight or nine hours. And again, he looked at me like I was a complete numbnuts. Um, and he said, right, you know, have a great time. He gave me something called the Can Pass certificate, and buggered off. And um, finished fueling the airplane, took it to a, a uh, where the FBO place was, and. um tried to tie her down and, and the FBO chaps again they're not used to aircraft of this kind of weight. So we ended up having to pull um four sets of railway sleepers from wherever the hell it was and um and tie the wings down to two railway sleepers each. Um which when it's kind of, you know, below freezing, that whole thing with your fingers mm. you know, it, it's horrible. It's like the blood is twice as thick as it is and it, it's just it's just a difficult everything in the cold is harder your mental processes the way your body reacts it was just difficult and then you know i managed to find a um a hotel for the evening and um um, went had something to eat got a couple of sets of gifts for the family you know uh, some beef jerky for my dad and, and hats for the rest of the family baseball things basically and um, and went into a restaurant, and there were signs on the wall saying that you know syphilis was on the rise in that part of of Canada. And again, I mean, I'm being flippant now, but I looked around at all these sad-looking people and thought, surely no one's shagging here. No one can have any kind of sex life in this kind of cold. And then I thought, there's probably bugger all else to do. Yeah. So, um, and you live in Bolton, and I live in Bolton. I know what hardship is. <laughs> if anyone knows what hardship is, it's it's, it's me. But um, so then I went back to the hotel and um, the time difference starts to play up a little bit on you because you're losing time. The uh, FBO chap um, came to pick me up at about 5 o'clock in the morning, something like that, 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock, took me to the aeroplane and um, and the anxiety then was that I just wouldn't be able to take off that day because again the weather report was bad. Um, but i went out and checked the airplane at let's say it was either six or seven o'clock in the morning whatever time it was and um it looked like the tire had gone down um not completely flat but it had, it had gone down and um and it, it, it becomes that moment of you know what if i'm stranded you know the airplane isn't going to make it out there's no waterway to ship it down because all that's iced over um so i i i thought well you know if there is a chance of flying back to nuke then i'll give that a go and um the guy in england that i've been speaking to on the flight clearances side of it um his reply was no i don't think you're going to make it today and i looked at the local information and thought well actually no i am going to give this a whiz and i think i was just so unbelievably tired again that was an expectation of dying that day i was just you know i've made it to canada now i need to make it back the sensible thing is to leave the airplane here and fly back commercially but um i thought i'll give it a whiz i moved the air i pulled the airplane off the the gravel bit of, of apron that it was on and the tire looked a little bit better um i had the chap take a picture of me by the side of the airplane and i was so bloody miserable um and about 30 minutes later after the aer- after the engine not starting for three or four occasions and I, I thought she's just going to die here she, the aeroplane will just die um, finally got started and said sod it, by hook or by crook I'm going back to uh, to Nuke and, um, and I took off, I aimed for 1500 feet above the sea probably made about 1000 feet and I was flying along at about 1000 feet for about 100 miles heading back towards Nuke going east and um, and then faced with more under and over decisions as to um, how to get back to nuke um but they you know they were saying that they'd got freezing fog above the airfield and um and that it was very windy and that there was no chance of me landing there and then I'd managed to get a relay call through to it was desperation stakes, but I managed to get a relay call through to a, a helicopter pilot that was flying somewhere along the coast, and he'd said that he'd just come out of of nuke and even though the weather details said that it was screwed up there and I would you Know the aeroplane would crash, um, that he, he said the sun had come out. And you do, you think to yourself, well, these weather forecasts are no bloody good, mm-hmm. you know, it's just absolutely bloody pointless. But there was such a sense of relief that you know he, he thought it was doable. So I, 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 uh, headed to Nuke, um, told myself that I'd do a nice gentle landing because the tyre was down, airspeed indicator not reading, not working because of the pitot was still frozen up, and um there was an air ambulance that was taken off so again I sort of stayed out of the way of them um, because from what I can tell loads of bloody people have all sorts of problems in Greenland and they're sending the air ambulance left right and centre and I was just keen to make sure I wasn't one of the uh, the recipients of a free flight but um, I, I slowed the aeroplane down and then I started to think to myself you know I've got to uh, I've got to land this bugger um, and because of the wheel I wanted to land very gently very slowly more over to one side because um, i was anxious about doing a 180 and having all sorts of problems with the tire blow and to cut a long story short completely cocked up the landing just stalled it a couple of feet above the runway plopped it down like it was a pancake um felt the the uh the impact through my spine and um horrible horrible landing but i was just i was drained i was knackered um and and um, managed to get her off the uh, runway. And I was bloody relieved. And again, I got out of the aeroplane. And I kind of... It, w- it was sort of one or two degrees, but you know, the sun was shining. And you could see the wall of freezing fog just off the coast. And I was just so bloody relieved. And um, and that was one of those experiences of saying, you know, thank goodness I'm alive. And then um, that was on the, uh, the Saturday, Nuke. And Greenland, for aviation purposes, closed on the the, uh, the Sunday. So I'd, I found myself a hostel um, where, again, every bugger... Because it, it was a fisherman's hospital. Every bugger wakes up at 5 o'clock in the morning to go bloody fishing. Mm-hmm. So you've no chance of sleeping whatsoever. Um, went to the airfield and kind of looked at the airplane from a distance and, and thought, right. Went to the airfield again on the Monday... And um, the guys in the tower were really funny people and we just ended up chatting and they said, for, not for the first time, I got the impression people just wanted me to hang around because I was new meat, I was someone new <laughs> yeah. to talk to. Yeah. And um, I started chatting to them and um, the the agreement was that I wouldn't fly, it was too dangerous to fly that day, so I said I wouldn't. And, um, and then I figured I'd try and change the tires, or the tire, and uh, fortunately a couple of, uh, the ground crew came along and i just looked gormless and they obviously understood the gormless face and they started changing the tire for me and that was really quite a pleasant experience one minute it was it was down and the other minute it was changed and then they invited me up to the crew area and fed me with chocolate digestives and we started talking about man united and arsenal and all sorts through sort of broken english and it was it was a good laugh and then went back to the um uh, to the hostel um There was a young lady that started to flirt with me a little bit which was quite pleasant i have no idea how bloody you know human relationships work and i'm always gormos in that regard but that was quite a pleasant experience um and um bless you probably thought i was a grandad figure (laughs) but um and then i went to bed and then you know i thought i'll get a good night's sleep and i'll fly on the next day and then early hours of the morning some woman that was in the next hostel room she started shagging So she started making lots of kind of groaning kind of noises. So that woke me up. So, you know, there'd always been a hope that I'd get some element of sleep. But at every chance, some bugger, one way or the other, whether they were bouncing around the room having mad passionate sex or whether it was bloody, you know, trawler crews getting up at ridiculous hours, I just didn't get any sleep whatsoever. And it was so frustrating. But I was at, you know, I was at Nuke then and then the next day... Um,
0: did you have a deadline to get out of Danish airspace Greenland?
1: Yes, I did. Um the 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 chaps in Denmark had given me a time frame to get out and so that kind of focuses the mind a little bit. Um and I um on the uh the Tuesday I think it was, um decided I was flying, you know. I knew the cloud would be against me, I knew the weather would be against me, but I thought if I can get through this 50 miles it'll be fine and uh, and that's what I did and then I came out with beautiful blue skies and um, and it was great, you get a great scenery, you know, you get the mountains on the horizon, you get the blue skies you get everything, it's just complete picture postcard stuff and then at that point the dine-on started to flash to say that the um, uh, the oil temperature was too high so I got out the manual, starts rooting through it and um, I've got a picture where it on the manual it says, just for a laugh um, the operator assumes all risk of use and acknowledges that by use of this, he or she knows that this engine is subject to a sudden stoppage. <laughs> and you sit there thinking, cock. Hmm. Um, so, you know, beautiful weather. And apart from that point, that had probably been the only leg of the flight where I thought, this is quite pleasant. Yeah. you know,
0: It's only certified for using lawnmowers and such like
1: <laughs> Yeah, you know, you you are. They, they might as well just put underneath it in, in kind of Latin subtitles saying, you are a dick but they don't for some strange reason that they haven't got round to yet um so at that point there was a another airfield between um nuke and and Nasasowak, um and i flew in that direction um because by that point it was the nearest bit and it, it said it was an unoccupied airfield and it also said that they had strange and heavy um crosswinds affecting the runway but there was there was a population of about 150 people in that little location and i figured they might have a phone signal so i floated around that airfield at six odd thousand feet or whatever it was and managed to get a text two text messages out to people in england saying i've got the dine on flashing that you know maybe the engine is about to stop what do you think and um fortunately a couple of replies came back saying you're probably okay And, you know, you're six and a half thousand feet up. You just, you know, you're on your own. And probably okay. It's kind of good. But it's not kind of, don't worry. Mm. You know? So I sort of floated around this airfield and thought, oh, I'll just bloody carry on. And then headed back toward, carried on towards Nassasowek. Again, the wind comes in from both ends of the runway. No airspeed indicator readings. Blah, 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 blah. Landed. Um... And there was a suggestion that I could have flown on that day, but I would have been a bit late um, uh, getting back to uh, to Kullu And at that point, you know, they start charging you hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of late fees for staying open late. And I thought, I'm not bloody doing that. But because of that, um, it meant I met, missed the window of opportunity for flying that day, and spent an extra two days in um, in Asasawak. And it's a horrible bloody no. I shouldn't say that it's a nice place if you just want to see nothing that moves Um, and it's an old military base and there's really just nothing to it and I ended up wandering around and meeting the um, the helicopter pilots that were there that were doing the um, they were doing a certain amount of work with um, um, the scientists that take readings on the polar ice cap on the uh, the ice cap and um, and I remember sat in this guy's this helicopter pilot's office and and I've got big pictures on the walls of the local area and they've got there were black lines across different bits on the bits where i'd flown through and um and i remember just saying to this guy as i sat there bored at, out of my tits saying "Well, there's those black lines and the guy went it's funny you should ask that because um they won't be marked on your garmin and they're not marked on any um maps um but those are electricity cables strung across the fjords at a thousand feet high and that was the kind of height that I'd flown into the fjords so it was one of those of you know I could have just garrotted myself and and chopped the aeroplane in two with those electric cables and just for good measure he went on and said you know we don't mark them you know you won't be able to see them from the air <laughs> so that was kind of a bit of a moment and then I I I the guy also went on and mentioned the aircraft that had crashed in Saseback because of the the uh the, the winds and stuff and um because I'd missed my window to to fly out um it was then, where can I kind of put the airplane and uh and there was a big Air Greenland hangar there. oh, one thing I didn't mention on the way down from um nuke to Kulusuk, someone's emergency locator beacon went off. the suggestion was that an aircraft had crashed on the the um the ice cap, but anyway, that aside um at nasassawak um i was uh, I had to find somewhere to put the airplane indoors because the winds were getting up to fifty knots and um the Greenland chaps in the end said that in return for free chocolate they'd let me put the aeroplane in the hangar and uh, bless them that's what happened for two days whilst the weather just blew an absolute hurricane outside I'm making it up with hurricane but it was 50 knot winds and mm-hmm. uh, I might be crazy but I'm not that bloody crazy And um, so I stayed there and that was just a bloody horrible experience you just sit around doing nothing and time just drags on you so much Um i got maybe a little bit more sleep but not a right lot but um and then you get people that fly in in nice airplanes you know cirruses and stuff like that and you kind of you know you do get a bit jealous and the last night i was there i stayed in the hostel and there were some really good fun people there some phd students and we there was such a temptation to get drunk with them but that was the friday and i decided i wouldn't and um and because it was a hostel i i you know they give you because i checked out to the hotel at that point because it was just bloody soulless and all they've got on tv was just got one channel that was showing american films about how to or tv programs about how to redo your kitchen and bathroom <laughs> and you just you, you just get so fed up with seeing people pouring concrete as a kitchen worktop i mean what sense does that make but anyway <laughs> so i'd given up on that hotel and i stayed in the hostel and in, in the hostel i'll say i'd I, some jokes and laughter and, and we had a great time with these students who were really nice people who subsequently sponsored me on the flight um, but um, you know you sleep in a in someone else's sleeping bag and you know you kind of you've, you have a hood element to it and and then you wake up in the morning and you've got there's do, there's, there's, there's dandruff inside your, your sleeping bag and I'm not big in the hair department <laughs> so you know you think this is someone else's dandruff I've got someone else's mites and horrible bits and pieces bloody all over me so that wasn't fun but um, went and fished the aeroplane out of the, the big hangar and uh, and headed off back to uh, to Kulyasuk and um, I bet you have a
0: newfound respect for uh, ferry pilots now don't you that they have to do this week in week out
1: yeah in yeah, fortunately they nice they go in nice aeroplanes mm-hmm. that you know um, that that they're all suited and booted for the cold, but um, you know I sort of didn't have that kind of situation. And again, on that that leg back from Nassauak to uh, to Kuljusuk, I was I was down at fifty feet maybe, uh, it's just you've got kind of a whiteout above you. You've got the sea. You've got you know droplets of water and whatever sort of hitting the windscreen and um you know i I said this before there is probably because of a lack of sleep there's that period of saying to yourself you know what all i have to do is push the stick forward by you know just a couple of inches and i'll be in the water and i'll be dead but it'll be all over and i know it it sounds a it, it sounds a strange thing to say but there was a period of saying i want this over it was only, you know, one of those brief moments kind of things but you just you just want it to end. Anyone that says flying the North Atlantic is easy or it's something that their flying school have thought about or they've thought about, bloody well don't. It's ridiculous. But anyway, you know, bumbled along at maybe 50 feet above the, the North Atlantic out of radio contact with anyone for a while. Um, finally made my way to uh, to Kulyasuk cool and um, landed on the, the gravel ironically in that two weeks that sort of week that i'd been away it looked like more of the the ice and the uh, the snow banks had melted a little bit which was good um got of the airplane went into the uh went into the tower um only to find out they were they thought because of my spot gps tracker they had lost they on on, because they'd been able to plot and see where i was now the spot gps device which i didn't mention before um it's really just if you're going hiking, it's not really a proper, mm-hmm. you know, telling you exactly where you are in real time. So when they'd been, especially the guys in Denmark, because they'd been following the flight as well, when they'd been following me, um, I'd been flying along. I'd had to fly further off the coast to try and avoid um, icebergs, because I was down at, say, sort of 30 feet, and I was worried about flying into an iceberg, and... Um, and so I'd sort of, again, because I'd said I'd follow the coast and I'd, I'd taken more of a direct track, And um, but they'd been following me through the Spot GPS device. And on their log, the track had stopped halfway across my route. So I'd landed and they thought I was dead. Um, so they'd started phoning people in England. They'd started phoning the, the um, flight clearance guy that I'd been dealing with and saying, look, you know, we think we've got a problem here. The guy's popped it." only for me to turn up at <laughs> And Suck. Um, and, I mean, you're laughing. I mean, I guess I was kind of laughing. Yeah. But it was one of those. And they said something like, you know, you need to change the batteries on the, the GPS device. And, and they were giving me a frown. And I was just too tired to say, the bloody thing doesn't properly work. Yeah. You know? But um, I dutifully changed the batteries. And, and they asked me if I wanted to, uh, to stay the night there. And I sort of said, no, thank you. But in my head, in my little cranium, I was shouting at them, not a, chance of my staying here because I just won't get out and again I was on that time frame to get the hell out of Dodge because of the, the promise I'd made to the guy in Denmark so I bought half a dozen different Mars bars paid all the fees that I was expected to um, put more Avgas in the aircraft which again I didn't particularly want to but you know that's kind of what I had to do um, and took off and started heading towards Iceland and um, again cloud all over the place the flight clearance chap who was a really nice guy called Rob Weaver who was very helpful um you know there is that thing when someone looks at a weather map that difference between looking at it but the actual conditions itself especially when it's so changeable and you're flying around bits of cloud and and all sorts and you know you know the sea's down there but you might be above it or you might be 500 feet above it and see white above you and it's kind of a you know it's Russian roulette Mm -hmm. for half a dozen hours and um anyway sort of approached um iceland got through to the um, icelandic controller and by that point i got up to nine and a half thousand feet and she said um because uh, that was the only point i'd been able to make contact with anyone because i've been dinking around clouds trying to stay vfr and um and she said um um you know do you want flight clearance to stay at flight level nine five whatever it was and i said yes but you need to understand that i'm a um a, a vfr only aircraft and i need ability to swap wherever i am you know the the track and my my altitude at whatever point and that completely flummoxed her she would no idea what to say by that i should stand by and then a couple of minutes later she came back on and said um clearance to fly at uh, nine and a half thousand feet denied descent to four and a half thousand feet well i couldn't because there was cloud there um but fortunately it started to level out a little bit or descend uh, the, fly, the cloud rather started to to dissipate a little bit so i managed to get down to the four and a half thousand feet five thousand feet and try to call up again but being lower you know you're in the north atlantic to an extent height means radio reception being lower i couldn't speak to her mm-hmm. so i, I kind of cursed and i thought about climbing again and i thought well four and a half thousand feet is you know four thousand Four hundred feet higher than I'm used to, so I'll just get on with it, carried further on and um, and then finally got through to the Iceland um, chaps and this guy came on the radio and said, um, you know Golf in New Zulu, you've you've flown higher than you were authorized to do. Um, I'm going to report you to the CAA when you get back and um you know you're a bad lad and I sort of sat there in and, and, and the aircraft and and thought, well, you know it was life or death. And I started scribbling some notes down. And this guy said, you were going to go to Accurie, but um, the weather's bad there, so we suggest you divert to uh, to Reykjavik. And the weather's great here, and I'm here, and um, and it'll definitely be open, because there was a, an issue about landing on time at Accurie. So I said, right, OK, I'll follow your suggestion, and I'll land at um, at Reykjavik. And by the way, can I meet you when I land? And um, headed in there, and at about... Twenty miles out, he made comment that there was some kind of a uh, uh, an Icelandic peak, and if I wanted, I could climb to fifteen thousand feet to clear it. And I thought, there's not a bloody chance I can clear to climb to fifteen thousand feet. Have you not heard that I'm a microlite?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I said, you know, I'll, if it's okay with you, I'll dink round this. And all the RT was very professional. I, I, you know, even though I was dog tired, I was trying my best to be very professional. I was writing things down before I was saying it. I was trying to speak and speak, and. Um, anyway as i got to about 10 miles away from um from Reykjavik this guy uh the, the tower lady came on the uh on the radio and said oh sorry about this or was that effect but we've the weather conditions have changed and we now have vfr only aircraft uh, airport at that point it was too late to go on to accurate i didn't have the fuel to divert apparently the weather had got a lot better there um and it was one of those of right well okay well i'll try and do the best i can So I kind of came in on um, on left base, and um, and as I'm sort of flying in, I was trying to dink around a few bits of clouds which weren't there, you know, the thirty forty minutes ago, and um, and I could see the uh, the um, the fire engine sort of starting to move along the runway oh and that was it as well he said that it was cheaper to land there than Accurate and that really that really floated my boat mm-hmm. I thought well if it's cheaper there then I'll definitely divert there only as I say for it to turn out to be high fire you see the the, the fire engine running along the runway because they're expecting you to cock up the landing and um, but by comparison to what I'd been used to it was it, weather conditions it might have well been you know the south of France with the sunshine and it was bloody clear as anything well, I thought it was so gently landed i say gently the airspeed indicator wasn't working so i floated down the runway and, uh, and and landed the fire truck then sort of peeled off and buggered off back um various different people appeared from customs and the fbo chaps and all sorts and sort of just walked around the airplane and looked completely bloody confused and then this air traffic controller that said i was going to get in trouble appeared and um he walked up to the airplane and he just he's like the hell is that a nice
0: hotel on the airport as well isn't there
1: yeah and I got crew discount there which is quite nice Um, climbed into bed at I don't know whatever time it was 10 or 11 o'clock woke up the next morning I kind of felt like I was on the home straight Um, the weather didn't look ideal but I kind of thought well I'm used to that Um, and I was still I was on this time frame to get back to uh, to get out of Danish airspace and, and Faroe Islands were the next step and so I had to be through there.
0: So the Faroes are part of the Danish airspace? Yeah
1: so you kind of you know that's their territory again I had to be beyond there. Checked out the weather the guy in England thought it was doable I wasn't quite so sure but I wanted to make the effort um, because I wanted to get out and anyway um, a couple of minutes later I was airborne Um, with it being um, a Sunday um, I was warned about Icelandic military airspace but the suggestion was that uh, that would be closed off. I'd planned to fly at about a thousand feet, the cloud started to come down, I was starting to get boxed in inside a valley, um, the aeroplane was being thrown all over the place, I started to feel sick. Came out of that, um, tried to radio the people at Reykjavik, couldn't make any contact with them, couldn't make any contact with anyone Started to fly along the coast as I was sort of leaving to go to uh, to uh, the Faroe Islands, and um, horrible twenty thirty knot headwind. Um, you've got the black beach, you've got the blue, and you've got the white sky. I was flying straight and level. I knew that I wasn't getting the ground speed that I wanted, um, and then the aeroplane just took a hell of a whack. Sorry, aeroplane and um it was just like a, a kick it was a my head kind of came forward in the belts, and just I think it was there or, or there and um I kind of reached up and felt blood on my forehead and that kind of wakes you up a little bit you know the idea of leaking inside the aeroplane but it was just a hell of a whack the aeroplane had taken and and I'd looked around more and probably because I was tired I didn't I hadn't realized that the black of the beach kind of goes on in front of you but it was it would just ri- risen rather into a cliff face, and that cliff face was maybe at that point maybe about 300 yards in front of me, and at mind of 80 knots kind of ground speed, you know you've not got a lot of time to sort of move out of the way. But you know I, I nearly collided with the uh, the cliff face. That but it was just it was it was just it was black sand, black beach, black cliff face, murk all around, and I just. Maybe hadn't been paying attention. Maybe it was tiredness again, but and then you know you you cut your head a little bit and you know you you can reach up and you feel the blood, and um, and that wakens you up a little bit. And I diverted away, obviously you know sort of banked quite sharply away from the cliff face, and um, and then started finding more bloody murky weather. You know, and I was down at again somewhere less than about a hundred feet. You've got water hitting the canopy. Um, and I probably flew at somewhere less than a hundred feet maybe for about two hours Um and it wasn't that wasn't particularly the, the weather forecast um, but again you know no ability to get inside the immersion suit weather conditions were worse behind me so there was no chance of turning back um, and again it's just a keep calm and carry on mentality you know you're gonna die it's just trying to put it off as long as you can mm-hmm the the cloud started to clear a little bit um and i managed to climb to about 200 300 feet and then you kind of get to 500 feet and you kind of know that you've been in a pickle when uh, you get to 500 feet or just a couple of hundred feet and you start to feel better yeah you know on days when you'd have thought 200 feet was quite low um getting to that height and then feeling relieved is kind of suggest that you've you've had a bit of a close call but uh i um that was you know that was one of the the low parts of the trip because when you' when you're down at sort of you know fifty feet or whatever it is you know you're worried about things coming out of the gloom at you you're worried about icing because you know it's all around you you're worried about a lapse of concentration and and you know a second's lapse of concentration and potentially you're in the water you know you you're worried about the engine stopping, you're worried about instrument issues, you start to think about, you start to think about ex-girlfriends, you start to think about how your business will run without you, you start to think about who will look after the cat. You start to think about what condition will the body be in when it's found, if it's found. You know, you start to think about all sorts of random things which go alongside just holding onto the stick and trying to fly straight and level. And you do. you it's it's a bizarre thing which you know if you have a life and death experience and it's over like that it's probably easier to take when you feel like you're on the edge for hours it's a bloody nightmare and you're in an unknown environment you don't know you know what accumulation of different um, atmospheric effects or whatever it might be or aircraft issues might lead to you know the aircraft the engine stuttering for a second or two that might result in a lack of power that at 10,000 feet might be fine and easy to deal with but at you know 50 feet it's just going to kill you Mm -hmm. and it it really is the kind of it's just I've said it before and i'll say it again anyone that thinks of flying across the north atlantic needs their head examining um because the weather just changes it's just impossible to deal with and it's it it just it's it, it gives you anxiety um and then fortunately um the weather started to improve and i made my way towards um towards the pharaohs and um managed to climb up to however many thousand feet it was i started to feel better and um and you could tell that the temperature started to get warmer as well and that started to feel like a positive thing so even though you know sort of two hours before i was thinking i was i was definitely going to die and i was i was you know, having dilemmas about everything towards your personal life and how people go on without you and all that kind of stuff, you know, you then start to think, actually, it's warmer, I'm feeling better, I can see the end in sight. And I got towards um, uh, Vegar and the chap on the radio sounded very nice, and I was doing my best to sound like I was a jumbo jet pilot. There was a little bit of, of camaraderie between the two of us and then he gave me instructions to fly in a certain way towards the airport, and then he starts telling me about, you know, watch out for flocks of geese hitting the aeroplane, and you start thinking, I can't go all this way just to get hit by a bloody goose, for God's sake, you know? I don't mind a small thrush or a starling or maybe a blue tip, but not a bloody big goose. And then I started to get really thrown around in this particular fjord as I was heading into the the airport, and I was being lobbed all over the place, and again, you start looking left and right, trying to figure out, uh, you know, looking at the wings, trying to figure out if something's going to fall off. That was a horrible experience, and I landed. It was a reasonably decent landing, not my best, but I landed. And um, I'd had an anxiety before about um, mucky air because it's built on the side of a, a cliff face kind of thing, and I'd been warned about um, being thrown all, all, all pummy, being thrown all over the place and that um, you know it was the kind of thing that might take off the undercarriage um, but I landed without instant maybe faster than I wanted I would have wanted to have landed about 40, 45 which is what I tend to do knots wise but because I was worried about the turbulent air I came in at maybe 55 and again the airspeed indicator wasn't working um, but that was my sort of feel for it so I sort of ran along the runway a lot faster than I would have done but it's a big thing it takes air buses and stuff um, but taxied off the guy appeared, got his stepladders out, splashed more fuel all over the wings, which honest to God, it, you know, if I go back on that trip, I'm going to throttle the bugger. But anyway, obviously I was nice and smiley and happy and just, you know, cheerfully mopped up all the um, all the excess avgas. I went into the tower. The guy was sat there and we had a chat and he called me an advent... No, he didn't. He called me a pioneer. Um, which sounded a bit strange coming from someone and he asked if I wanted to spend the night there and I said no thanks and I went back to the aeroplane and again had another stab at cleaning the wing and getting avgas off it and the thing about that is when you're doing that with the stuff that you have in the aeroplane it means that you bring that stuff back into the aeroplane yeah. so you've got the smell of avgas inside the the cabin when you're looking to set off and as I was doing a last walk around the aeroplane because um, I've got Oc- an element of OCD um, I spotted streaks of oil underneath the aircraft which I went to the front and I started poking around and um, and I'd had issues before which I would forgot to mention where the antifreeze was trying to escape and I thought I'd sorted that out um, and I'd also had issues where i tried to sort out the pitot uh, not working and the airspeed indicator readings I'd given myself an embolism trying to sort that out but um poked around in front of the airplane and uh and um and i thought to myself look i've got enough oil in it it'll just be because the temperature has been minus whatever it's warmed up now so the last time i put oil in it it'll now be part of the natural process of venting back out again and that was the logic that was the the, the perception that i took so i decided i'd fly on again i was if i'd have had a full night's sleep i probably wouldn't have flown anywhere but um i hadn't and i hadn't for two weeks and i got in the aeroplane and took off and the flight back from um Vega in the faroes to uh, to to wick was relatively uneventful again i was watching the oil temperature because that was spiking still um and i was keeping an ear open for any kind of rough running on the engine but um fortunately it was fine and I headed towards wick um, started to speak to more English people on the radio. I had to explain to someone that uh, you know WIC was closed, but they knew I was going because it was about nine o'clock by that point, and they'd closed earlier up earlier on. But i got special permission to land after hours, and then you start to think to yourself, you got my i got really special permission to land after hours, but that doesn't mean to say that if fatigue or an engine issue or whatever catches up with you, and I crash land. You know, some bugger will find me the next morning still dead of hypothermia, just mm-hmm. the same. Yeah. So um, I was a bit uh, twitchy, but for some reason, I think it was, it was um, a feeling that I was about to to close off that part of the chapter. I started doing my uh, my blind calls in Scottish and Welsh and Irish, and I started putting different accents on for each approach to the airfield. And I was just I was just demob happy. I was just pleased to be alive. And then I landed got out of the aeroplane and sat on the floor for about 20 minutes and then a chap appeared taxi driver appeared took me to the hotel went to bed and um was woken up at 6 o'clock because two friends of mine started to text me uh no half past 6 maybe so again last bloody trip of the day didn't get any bloody sleep and then um via Carlisle Deepak appeared and um a couple of other chaps and um we made it back here and um again probably one of the worst landings i've ever done barton's got i don't know 700 meter runway or whatever it is and um i used all of it bar about 50 meters of it trying to land it was a bloody disaster and then finally tumbled out of the airplane dave Mallow was with me on that last leg and i just sat by the airplane and was just so bloody relieved to be alive
0: and what day was that you got back was that uh, i think it was the monday
1: yeah the irony of it is you get back and you you know you you feel like you've gone through hell and you've written yourself off so many times and then you start meeting people who have gone through the normal day-to-day existence that Mm -hmm. they've always had. You know, I I may have mentioned it before, you know, the next day I went to work and I was in the the co-op getting the um, three-for-two-pound meal deal, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm in the same queue with the same people I've seen for the last couple of years, you know, and the big dilemma is... Do I go with a crunchy as part of the meal deal, or do I go with Smarties? Because I am prone to Smarties, um, and that's your dilemma. And you, you just take it for granted that you know has it all happened, or is it just a dream? And then the sad thing was that the next day after the three for two meal deal, crunchy versus Smarties dilemma, my poor old dad died. So, and he'd been a part of the trip in terms of the reason why I'd wanted to do it and buying him presents along the the. Uh, as part of the different places I'd gone into, you know? And um, and that was kind of the, the sad part of the, the whole trip because, you know, and again, it, it puts the emphasis back on we all have one life and you get out of it what you can. And I was incredibly bloody lucky not to have died. Um, am I the better for it? I don't know.
0: Has it changed your... your- view on life on flying on taking risks
1: the the trip to canada was my everest you know it was it was um going around the world i'm sure would be a doddle compared to this because the the extra issue here was the cold and ice forming on the wings and you know It might be one thing to do one leg across the Atlantic. To do one leg across the Atlantic and then damn well come back again is just absolutely bloody ludicrous. Um, And if anyone else comes back to me since I've landed and and been back at Barton for a couple of months now, but if anyone else comes back to me and says, um, you know, we are thinking of flying to Oshkosh or wherever it might be, what do you think? You know, I'll be very polite and I'll I'll say, you know, if you want to, it's up to you, but... Um, on the inside, I'll be screaming at them, don't be an absolute bloody buffoon. But then, you know, and and the reason I can, to an extent, say that is because the weather forecast won't be what you'll expect. Mm -hmm. You know, you can think it'll be great and it'll be crap. You can think it'll be crap and it might be great. But it's all that, um, it's the bureaucracy that go with it. It's the changeability of everything. It's the second guessing that you do. And I can also see how people kill themselves if they've got two different, if they've got two pilots flying the trip. Because one might egg on the other, mm-hmm. or you know, not necessarily make the ideal set of decisions. Because one assumes that the other one knows what the other one's doing, kind of thing. By saying let's press ahead, the only idiot that I had, you know, pushing me on or holding me back was to a large extent me. And um, but on the plus side of that, it kind of means that you know, if anyone says to me, you know, I want to go flying as a as a favor or whatever it might be, then I'm probably more the person to take them because i've put myself through hell and i'm less likely to to panic you know if something does go wrong and i can see how that's what polishes people off you know they get into an environment they can't control they're not used to and they do do that panicking thing and the only thing that that kept me alive is the fact that you know i'm not necessarily the kind of person that panics in a in an unknown situation i just try and get on with it
0: and as will probably come your way there's people going to criticise you and saying you're taking unnecessary risks what, what do you say to them?
1: if you if you try and if you if you go from let's say for sake of argument from Manchester, Barton to Blackpool you're in a known environment You know a lot of chaps might I don't know might do local flights and they might get pleasure and excitement out of that I've done local flights I've been to the Alps I've done the Round Britain thing. I've um you know, I've now been to Canada. Um if you put yourself in a new environment there's gonna be new challenges. The challenges that I experienced were severe and I've been very, very, very fortunate in that I've come through it. Um I took pictures along the trip that now sat in the aircraft with you. You know, give me a chill inside Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, it's bloody intense, scary stuff. But by the same token, if someone had have said to me, the cloud is going to be, you know, you're going to be flying along at 30 feet and you're going to see sleet hitting the windscreen in front of you and you're going to have instrument failures and you're going to potentially have human failures in terms of a lack of sleep and poor judgment. And i'd say no of course i wouldn't bloody fly anywhere that'd be just absolutely stupid but you know you that's part and parcel of not testing yourself but if you're going to try and do something that is unique and a flight to canada and back in a in a microlight is unique those to an extent are the challenges you're going to you're going to face and i got you know very lucky
0: brilliant well great story thank you very much for sharing it with us john
1: I've rattled on a lot. I'm sorry I've taken up a lot of your time. <laughs> Cheers.
0: John Hilton there. Well, what an epic adventure indeed. And what a great advert John is for Microlite Aviation. As John said in the podcast, he's still raising money for the Clutterbridge Cancer Charity. Uh, and you can find the link to his Just Giving site on the Flying Podcast website. That's uh, www.flyingpodcast.co.uk. John's also in the throes of writing an ebook. About his adventures, and I'll let you all know when and where that is available. All the proceeds from the book will go to the very same charity. Don't forget you can help support the podcast by clicking on some of the links on the Flying Podcast website, or maybe order something uh, aviation related uh, via the, uh, via one of the Amazon links on the site, too. Well, that's it for another episode. If you have any good ideas or would like to appear on an episode, please send an email to steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. And as ever, thanks for listening.